This is the Christian Heritage London podcast from London. It's a great privilege for me to be sitting here with none other than Alistair Roberts. Dr. Alistair Roberts, how are you, sir? I'm doing very well. well welcome. And Alistair is well known from his uh, contributions to the exemplary Mere Fidelity podcast. How long have you been doing that podcast? I don't know. It must be about four years, five years maybe now. Yeah, exemplary. I heard um, Tim Keller said it was uh, something he thought was a wonderful example because of the uh, the fun you have, but also you come from different perspectives. However, there is this beautiful coming together. And also, uh, I, I think he referenced the, the centeredness on the text and the gospel, which is uh, evident in all the conversations. But uh, also you work with the Theopolis Institute with yep. Peter Lightheart, who we've previously had on the show, and are an author. Andrew Wilson tells me that the uh, Exodus book... Uh, were your ideas, and he just wrote them down. So, well, I wrote about one hundred and fifty thousand words of unreadable text, and he <laughs> reduced it to something that people would actually read and take in. So, <laughs> all of the pleasure that people have in reading it is down to Andrew. Oh, isn't that great? He challenged me to um, to try and find the page that he had written. I thought I had it, but no, I, was, <laughs> I, I still don't know what was the page he wrote. And uh, you are presently visiting London, but you are based where presently? I'm based in Stoke-on-Trent, so... And what do you do there? Mostly independence scholarship. So the last year, of course, has been a very strange time for all of us. So I'd usually be doing a lot more travelling and visiting the US, doing things for the Davenant and Theopolis Institutes. But the main thing I've been doing the past year has just been working from my own little office and producing a commentary on the whole Bible. Mm, A commentary on the whole Bible. Can you tell us more about that? Yes. So you have short-term goals and you have long-term goals and you have the lifetime goals. And one of my lifetime goals is just to get people to read the Bible more and to have a sense that this text is not as forbidding as it might originally seem, that some of these strange passages are actually incredibly exciting when you get into them. So the other thing with that is to encourage people to read the Bible a bit more typologically, to recognise that there are unifying themes, that the story is a single story, and that there is a great deal of what we call intertextuality in the text, that each text is calling back to other texts or looking forward to other ones. And so the project has been filling out that basic vision and giving people a sort of companion to work through the text with them. Mm. So each day I have two reflections, um, one of the Old Testament, one of the New, currently finishing off the book of Daniel, which has been a lot of fun, Mm. working out what 1,290 days refers to, and then the 1,335 days, things like that. And then the book of Acts. And so I've done the Old Testament history books and things like Proverbs, much of Psalms, um, Ezekiel, now just finished Daniel, Ecclesiastes, Proverbs, things like that, Mm. have um, a few more other books like Song of Songs and the rest, just the Minor Prophets and Isaiah. Mm. And then I've done the whole of the New Testament. It's been an incredibly rewarding project to do. And in terms of encouraging people to enter the text, the way it will distinguish itself from a normal all-Bible commentary, it's set out in daily readings? Yes, um, in its initial form. So the content is all going to be on a website where you can see the pages, um, just a single page, and every single one of the chapters has a box representing it. You can hover over it, click on, and it will 
give the reading or reflection for that mm. particular passage. So you stand in, a, in the in the great tradition of uh, Robert Murray McShane and Don Carson has done a similar thing for the love of God, which I've. I've read for so many years now, I think I've learned it as much as I've learned the scripture. I feel like I know Don. I, feel, I, know, I know the Don. But yes, yeah, well, that sounds a fantastic service to the church, which is, of course, uh, the priority of, uh, of the best theologians. And you are also involved in um, academic teaching with the Theopolis Institute. Peter Lightheart is a commentator who, has, who began that thing. You've become friends with him, presumably, over time? Very much, yeah. Um, and with his family of like seven or eight children, is that right? Has more than seven or eight children. <laughs> yeah, and lots of grandchildren now. My first involvement was with the Biblical Horizons and James Jordan his work, which um, I first was exposed to a long time ago now, maybe 20 years even. And I read his book, Through New Eyes, which is how to read the Bible, recognising the symbolism, the typology, things like that. First time I read it, it was just it was just a bit too weird for me. So I put it to one side and then revisited it at a later point and just found it opened my eyes to so much in the text that I'd missed before. Mm-hmm. Gave me a sense of the depth of the symbolism. It's integrity as a system. It's not just odd literary things that some people think would think of, but there are profound um, theological insights that are revealed through the typology and the symbolism. And so learning to read the text, not just learning how to interpret a few odd texts here and there, but the text in general. This is something that I really gained from James Jordan. And through James Jordan's work, that was really the seed for the later Theopolis Institute. Mm -hmm. So a few years ago, I was invited to join the Institute and have been working for them since then. Their flagship program is a fellows program where in a period of about a year, we have training in how to read the Bible, go through every single part of the scriptures, giving an overview, giving people some of the tools to read the text well. And then some of the other areas that you just wouldn't have training in, in many seminaries. So things like church music, how to how to sing well, how to understand the history of the church's music, mm-hmm. the importance of the Psalms as the church's hymn book and how you can develop psalm singing within your churches. It's been a real delight. And so you have a small group of people who are working together over this year-long period. You have individual projects at the end of it for the those who want to go on and do an honours program, and then two longer residential periods, and the rest we have online, what we call Pesha groups. So we'll be working through a text together, usually have three texts and groups of two or three who join together and work through a particular text, and then we talk through and ask questions and Mm. challenge. And it's really been very rewarding. Mm -hmm. Reflecting together. Yep. I was interested. I was involved in um, uh, a a rebrand of a a seminary in London, and I brought to the attention of the faculty a a, a little essay written by someone who had had C.S. Lewis as their tutor. And uh, what their observation was that... uh, when he and Lewis were studying a text, it was not as though Lewis was had the inside track, but rather that together they came to a text. And it seemed to me a rather precious picture of uh, like a father and son relationship in terms of someone who has a, a generation or two on a young person saying, this is what I've seen. 
And together, let's see what we can see. And uh, there's, there's a rather, rather attractive picture. How was it that you came to understand the gospel yourself, Alistair? My parents were um, missionaries and church planters in the south of Ireland, so they founded a small Reformed Baptist congregation in Clonmel. And so I was raised reading the scripture from a very early age. The challenge for me was, as I think it is for many people within a Christian home, to recognize that this is something that you've been raised in, but it should be something that's your own on a very deep personal level. And for me, there were a number of stages. I don't think we have, we can focus a lot upon a particular punctilia event of conversion. And I can point to an event for that. But in many ways, I think the more I've thought about my story, I kind of tell it a bit differently. So there was a particular point when I was about four, where I was challenged about my own personal relationship with Christ, because I've been raised um, praying to God as Father, um, relating to the Scriptures as something that I was memorizing and encouraged to think about. But then it was reading First John, and the challenge about loving God and loving your brother. And my brother was very hard to love at the time. And for me, that was one of the things that challenged me to think about my relationship with Christ in a more serious way. So that was very early on. You can't run on the steam, as it were, of a, a conversion at the age of four all the way through your teenage and adult life. So I th- think very much we have to have a number of conversions during our lives in many ways. Our faith needs to grow with us. And I had, a, in many ways, what I would see as an event that was, or a series of events that were no less significant in my later teens, where after a period of about two years backsliding, having poor relationship with my family and parents particularly. I was reading the stories of the early Methodist preachers and just being challenged by their faith and the seriousness of the way that they thought about what the gospel meant and what it meant to relate to Christ. And for me, that was something that broke through for me at that time. And so it was as if there was a sudden shift in my whole outlook on life. I had been very angry and I'd had a lot of pent-up aggression at my parents, my family, things like that. And it was that period of time when it was as if clouds just lifted and I had a sense of just how important it was to, to know what Christ has done for me and to be a faithful servant and to pursue him with diligence. And that I think that's one of the things that I really took from the early Methodist preachers, the seriousness of their pursuit of Christ. Mm. It was not just something that you have an event that happened at some point in your past, but this is something that you devote your life to. Mm. And there's a sense of mission that goes with that as well, that Mm. you're pursuing Christ yourself, but you're also being set a mission in his name. And so that, I think, has been something that has stayed with me in many mm. respects, although my faith has changed form as I've grown older and developed, and there are certain things that have become more important, particularly as I've started to pursue theology as a vocation, that your faith um, matures in certain areas of knowledge, and the importance of Scripture mm. has has always been central to me. Yes. That Scripture is a text that you meditate upon, mm. and there's something of God's goodness and beauty that is discovered in Scripture. Evangelical theologies of Scripture can be better than their practice. Mm. That we have a sense that 
this text is really important, but we try and try and use it. It in uh-huh. the sense that it's just there to be used. Right. It's not treated enough as a place where we actually encounter Christ. Well, this is it. This is a striking thing you're pointing out there, because not least because, of course. The very thing you're drawing attention to there is that the history over time, uh, th- th- although you, you you saw something new, in a sense you saw something old, <laughs> you saw yep. something was someone who says, I have understood this gospel and therefore I essentially consecrate myself unto its writer. And then as you read the greatest writers on the gospel, you tend to find again and again, they're saying the things which, <laughs> it's like uh, it's, Paul says in Colossians, as you began, continue. Yep. And and I love to draw attention to that, Alistair, because I was only talking to someone last week who came on a walk and said, but don't you feel like you haven't managed anything when you hear all these people's stories? I say, actually, the people we celebrate, if you read what they wrote, they say, like George Whitfield, the greatest preacher probably since Bible times, saying, I, I feel like I need to begin to begin. And this is late on in life. Yep. And you feel, it's not that we somehow arrive, when the, when the elders around the throne sit before Christ, what do they do? They cast down their crowns. They say, worthy is the lamb. They don't say how well I've done. And there's something glorious in that. You're, you're seeing layers of, of, <laughs> of God fulfilling his purpose. And that purpose is a lot of the time bringing our attention to him rather than to a kind of uh, Pelagian activity. Yep. And yeah. it's the challenge of always returning to the beginning. The, I mean, the foundation is Christ. And as we return to that, it's not as if we're not making any progress, but we're not progressing beyond that beginning. We're mm. progressing into that beginning and finding that in the great poem that people have seen in Colossians 1, 15 to 20, where it's a play upon the words in the beginning, but it's taking four, at least four different senses of that term. He's the firstborn. He's the beginning. He's the, um, he's the one over all of these things. And mm. it's the way that there's the manifoldness of this one, as it were, epiphany that we notice Christ is the one who's at the heart, mm. the outset, the foundation of everything. Mm. And as we explore that truth, it's as if an epiphany is being refracted into its various colors. Mm. And we begin to see something wow. that isn't new so much as seeing something that's always been true mm. in a deeper way. Mm. And that's the challenge, I think, of the Christian faith, never to get beyond the beginning, yes. but to work further and further into that beginning. And, and interestingly, again, because we're talking uh, in terms of something which has happened, the implications are written large in history. So, therefore, we have um, Oxford and Cambridge and so on. And the, essentially, people who were training people so that they could help people to see that. And yep. the, the colleges, the universities of... of uh, I, I believe that might even be the case for the Sorbonne. There was originally a, a Christian impetus uh, behind the thing because you have to be shown how this uh, how this intersects everything. I was reading Jonathan Edwards yesterday talking in terms of how the way colours work. There is something beautiful about the blueness of the sky. And if it was a different, he's implying if it was a different colour, it wouldn't be as right. And and yet there are harmonies which we see and harmonies we don't see. And yet the, the harmonies we don't see, we see them uh, in the sense that if they weren't there, it wouldn't be as beautiful. And you think, this sounds um, extremely subjective, except all believers say, yeah, I know what you mean. I know yep. what you mean, <laughs> which is uh, encouraging. There's a great line in the hymn, um, 
Heaven above is softer blue, earth below is sweeter green. Something lives in every hue Christless eyes have never seen. The experience of (laughs) seeing the world, knowing that it finds its united, condensed meaning in Christ, and that every shard, as it were, of God's beauty that you're seeing in the world, you can trace back to him. Mm. And for me, it's something I've seen a lot within scripture that Mm. there is a sort of stained glass window character to it you can look at the window and you can see the the images upon the glass but you can also see that there is light coming through from a source behind it Mm. and that light has a glory that is refracted and seen almost as a result of those images those Mm. images in some sense they stand between you and the light but they also are the means by which you see the beauty of the light wow and scripture I think, and the world have that character. This is it. Now, this is a, it raises another question, though, Alistair, because the implication of this is we, we're, we're in a world in which we are told to go and make disciples. And you've just said this thing, uh, believers tend to find open scriptures so that we can look for the, the, the what, can, what do I do? Now, seeing this beauty, one wants to tell of it. One wants to, want to do something. How can we <laughs> apply these things? Now, I would, I would, I would, let me introduce an answer to you and let you riff on it. It's interesting that the, the meekness of wisdom is advocated. And when we speak, when we see of how man's anger doesn't produce anything good, that we, we see um, peace isn't just the absence of trouble. It is the presence of something. Now, that's interesting because the church is not called simply to lecture, but the church is embodying something. And therefore, your housewife living in a, a suburb somewhere, being kind to her neighbours because of this Christ, seems to be pushing back darkness. Yep. Would you talk to us a little on this, on the application of this? Yeah, so I think part of I think what we're, we should recognise is that when we're calling people to the light, it's because we ourselves have found something of the glory of that light ourselves, and we're living in that. Yes. That so often we can treat, it's the, the Bebbington quadrilateral, as people have talked about it, the distinguishing marks of evangelicalism. Crucicentric, being centred on the cross, activist, that we want to go out there and do things for Christ. Conversionist, that we believe that we all need Jesus and we need to turn to him. And then biblicists, that we focus upon scripture and we believe that this text is authoritative. It speaks with a relevance and an urgency in our, into our lives. But there is always a danger within some of these things that we can be focused very much upon going out so much that we fail to realize what we have, that we've been given. Amen. That we're trying to call people into something that we have been granted in Christ. Yes. And so, in many ways, it's starting with recognizing the importance of growing into what we already have, mm-hmm. that we need something yes. to call people into. Yes, that's so true. That's so true. And, and you'll, you find people, because we are worshipping beings, there is even the danger that a person can see the form of our church at such a, such a high level <laughs> that the church becomes the gospel, yep. rather than the actual, in terms of... Um, uh, yeah, the calling people to, and the body becomes rather than a body, it becomes a mouth, swallowing people into air. You know, <laughs> and I think also within the modern world, this is something that is very important that the words of the gospel do not make sense to many modern people 
I mean, there have always been foolishness to the world, but there's something about the modern world post-Christianity that it's very hard for people to understand what the gospel means. And you almost need a world within which those words have their proper resonance. And that world where those words really are heard in the way that they should be, maybe go off a slight tangent, but work back to that point, that the lives of faithful Christians, of the saints in the broader sense of that term, they their faces, as it were, their lives are changed by a radiance and a glory that they see in Christ. Mm. And they express something about humanity that's inconceivable to people who do not have Christ, do not have that horizon to work towards. Mm. And where those lives are not seen, the word of faith that is the thing that produces that character of life in them cannot be heard mm. in a way that's understandable. <laughs> and so I think it's th- the connection between those lives that manifest the light of Christ. I mean, the church is called to be a city set on a hill. Mm. Like, I mean, the new Jerusalem, it's yes. set on a hill that can be seen as a, a site that people ascend to. But in the same way, we're called to let our light shine before man, that mm. they should see in us something of the light of Christ. Yeah described in a lot of different ways in the New Testament, in that light imagery. We're sons of the light. We're those who are a candlestick. We're those who bear the light of Christ. We're those who shine as lights in the world, who are stars, who Mm. redeem the time. And I think when we talk about redeeming the time, we tend to think about make the most use of what time you have. But time is a more qualitative thing. I mean, you can think about the times of darkness, that the scripture talks about a lot in the New Testament, these times where it's shaped by um, the insensibility of sleep, by um, dissipation and all these sorts of activities of the night. So, Paul talks about this in Romans, for instance. He focuses upon the sort of dissipation that goes with certain activities that are associated with the nighttime, Mm. revelries and um, drunkenness and all these sorts of things. And, We are supposed to be people of the day. Mm. There's a qualitative character to the time that we represent. And as we live in a way that manifests the wakefulness, the sobriety, the alertness, and the the light that Christ brings. He's the Mm. day spring from on high. He's Mm -hmm. the dawn. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We talk about the resurrection, arise, shine, your light has dawned. Mm. He's the beginning of that new day of the new creation. Yes. And so, as we represent that to the world, we're redeeming the time, I think, in a fuller sense. And we're presenting something of a dawn that, in some sense, it has not yet arrived, but Mm. it's already being seen, as it were, within the horizon that the church should represent. It's lovely. Again, you are uh, illustrating the text where it says, the one who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in us. Now, what can you do? to make the light shine in you. you know, he who said, let there be light, there's nothing you can do about that. He's done it just as there's nothing I can do which makes him rise from the dead. He did it. And, and a believer is constantly reminded of that and reminded of that. And the way it seems to be acted into the world has to do with that freedom, has to do with that freeness. Now here, in, of course, in London, um, we, we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. We are within walking distance of sites associated with Wilberforce, <laughs> Jeremiah Burroughs, Spurgeon, 
John Wesley, George Whitfield, William Tyndale. And again and again, their lives speak of this awesome variable, this awesome dynamic. Are there people who have particularly encouraged and built you up? Have you made friends in history who you look forward to meeting? Yes, I mean, I mentioned earlier on just the importance of the early Methodist preachers. And there's something about the lives of the saints of past ages and of the present age that we see in them something true about humanity that would otherwise be inconceivable. We can mm. imagine that human beings could realize those things. And I think when people who are non-Christians see something of the beauty of humanity lived in the light of Christ, mm. there is something compelling about that. Mm -hmm. Because what they're seeing ultimately is Christ himself, his light. Mm -hmm. And so for me, I would say that has been hugely important. The, the early Methodist yes. preachers? Yeah. And beyond that, I think many people in the communities that I've been part of, mm -hmm. who generally of a, an older generation, mm. who have lived faithfully for many years and lives that, I mean, no one will have heard of them outside of the communities, but the sort of faithfulness that yields the beauty of deep Christian character. Mm. When you see that, you don't see that outside of the church in the same way. Mm. There's something compelling and true about it. Mm. There's a solidity and a genuineness hmm. that commends the saviour that has produced that character in someone. Mm -hmm. And so for me, I think it's one of the areas that maybe we don't think enough about, mm. the importance of these models of faith. Mm. And maybe it's one of the dangers that we face in a church that within a society that's focused upon youth and spectacle, we lose sight of the importance of the witness borne by character that's quiet and unassuming but has proven the promises of Christ and proven the character of Christ as it's been worked in a person over time and in the later years of life that you can see in seasons of your own life that you're yet to experience, you can see those seasons being lived out faithfully and beautifully in someone else in a way that's compelling and mm. makes you want to following their footsteps. Amen. Yes, I was uh, saying to our children, one of the gifts that God gives to you, as, as I, of course, as I cleared my throat and pointed at myself, is, uh, <laughs> is people who are a generation or two older than you who are, who've seen some things and who love you yep. and uh, would like to <laughs> help you not to make mistakes and so on. <laughs> but um, yes, and that's, uh, we are told of this family into which we're invited freely and so on. What a striking point. Yes, it's, um, it's, a, it's a gift. The church is the gift in that sense. Yes. And anyone else from church history? <laughs> yes, I've, given my vocation is that of a theologian and has been influenced in many ways by the faith of past theologians. I mean, I find reading John Calvin earlier on was very important for my own um, Christian development. And my sense of how theology itself and the pursuit of theology, and also I think in Calvin, a deep respect, respectful attentiveness to the text. Calvin, mm. when he's reading the text, is not just reading his theology into it. Yes, He's trying to be faithful and true to it. That's right. And there's a reason why people still study him for, mm. the, That's for right. to this day. That's right. And so I've found that 
very important in, along with, I suppose, his approach to the text, there's a seriousness and a weightiness and a gravity in his view of God. Mm. We can often read Calvin and think about his very pessimistic view of human nature as if that's it's driven primarily by just some um, negative view of humanity and just some notion of human beings as worthless or whatever like that, something along those lines. And I don't think that's correct. I think it's seeing humanity in the light of the glory of God. Yes. yes. When you see his majesty, you begin to see next to God's majesty, the flaws, the failings, the insufficiency of man. And that needn't be a deep, pessimistic, sort of theological black pill, as some might talk about it. There is an element of that to it. But there is also a way in which everything looks different when you look at it from the perspective of the glory of God. Mm. And there's a knowledge that you have, as Calvin's theology begins with, a knowledge that you have of yourself that you cannot gain apart from a knowledge of God. Mm. And vice versa, there's this reciprocal relationship between the knowledge of God and ourselves. Yes. And so, if we're doing theology in a responsible and Christian way, it should be changing us. It should be changing the way yes. that we think about ourselves as human beings and as individuals. And it should also be producing in us a deeper seriousness before mm. God. Mm. And theology is not just a sort of intellectual enterprise. Of yes. matter- I mean, it's certainly intellectually stimulating and exciting, particularly when you're getting into some of the details of the text and mm. thinking about the intricate relationship between doctrines and systematic theology. That's it can be very compelling as an intellectual enterprise, but ultimately it's about God and knowing him and in his light, yes. knowing everything else. Yes, yes, this is it. The, the people have looked for a center of his theology, but yes, as again and again, you find it essentially, well, Gary Williams suggested to me that it was, it was just a, it's the text. He's trying, he comes under the text, but he, he also, as you say, has this centeredness on the glory of God, which, guess what? It works, but it's not as though he... And in a sense, I suppose if you notice that God is firstly preoccupied with his glory and that that is the safest place that a human can be, yeah, you'll be sensitive to that. But it isn't, as you say, it isn't a cynical thing in him. He's just holding up the text and it's hanging correctly and helpfully. Again and again, you find his commentaries and his, uh, his institutes compelling in this way. I was striking also that you're talking about the uh, theology for its own sake, of course, is the bugbear of the, of the popular uh, con- uh, Christian consciousness. But the greatest theologians have, like Jonathan Edwards didn't even call it theology, called it divinity. And it seemed to be about that which actually influenced him. Today, he the day on which he preached his farewell sermon. Hmm. And of course, he's been fired by his church and it's been very painful. But he says in that last sermon, I will be praying, I will continue to be praying for you. He seems to be living out what he'd been preaching. And uh, yes, it doesn't make sense apart from the gospel in that sense. So um, to what are you up presently, um, Alistair? My main project is this big Bible project. Alongside that, I've got various other things that I've been working on. I'm going to be working on a book on numerology with James Bajon, which I'm rather excited about. <laughs> numerology is one of those things that people 
think is very weird and strange. When you start to look into it a bit deeper, there is, at the first stage, there's this bridge to get over that does the Bible have these sorts of weird things that it's doing with numbers? And then you start to realize, yes, it does. <laughs> and then you start to ask questions, what is that about? What yeah, is it right. doing when it's doing these things? Mm-hmm. And so we're producing a book for the Theopolis Institute, gets into that question and tries to, to teach people about some of the strange numbers that you encounter and why Mm-hmm. They um, tell us something about the deeper theological import of the text. Well, let me d- d- turn that question slightly and say, therefore, or turn what you just said. It's like a criticism that has been made of when a theologian writes a systematic theology. The criticism has been made that when you, when you put down on paper, this is what I believe about everything, you're stuck because you can't develop your thinking on anything. If someone comes to you and says, um, you've written this book on numerology, I just don't agree with you on that number. I don't agree with on this. Firstly, what does that make you think or do? Put it this way. When you write, what is it like to write as worship? Yep. In the sense that you are, you're not necessarily putting down, this is the law, This is some, but rather this is something beautiful. And I think your friend uh, Andrew Wilson, in his, his book recently, looking at everything, what was the name of the book? All Things or something. I think it was called that. All God things. of All Things. God of All Things. There you go. That one of the comments that's been made of it was clearly he was worshipping while he was writing yep. the thing. What's it like writing a book on something as esoteric as numerology and then finding someone completely disagrees with you? Yeah, I, I think that <laughs> when we're reading the text, we tend to think about ourselves as, in the modern academy context, you're de- a detached scholar getting into the depth of this particular ancient text and you're trying to understand what's going on there. Whereas Christians read Scripture very differently. And I think there's something about the importance of reading the Scriptures in fellowship with Christians of all ages. Mm -hmm. Um, We're reading alongside Augustine. We're reading alongside Calvin. We're reading alongside um, Aquinas. And all these figures are companions on the way of interpreting this text. And not just companions from church history, but in the present context, and this is one of the things that I've found in my reading of Scripture, it's never an individual thing. Mm-hmm. I do a lot of study of the text by myself, using commentaries and things like that, but I'm constantly bouncing my ideas and my readings off other people. So, mm. I mean, I was on the subject of numerology, I just sent James Bajana an email yesterday and thinking, okay, what's going on at the beginning of the book of Esther? You have these numbers that never appear anywhere else in Scripture except in reference to the ages of Sarah and Isaac. So you have the number 127 provinces and 180 days of a feast. What's going on there? And so is there any way in which this is a tip-off to something about the meaning of the text? Well, Esther is like a Sarah character. She's taken into the house of the pagan king, and she has to hide her identity in various ways. There's the threat to the seed. Um, you can maybe think of the relationship between the Jews being threatened and Isaac's life being threatened. Um, is there something to that? And so, knock those de- ideas around for a while, see if anything happens. I hold the idea very lightly for the time being, but that that's generally the way I read the text. So when someone challenges me on one of those readings that I've put forward, generally what I've written in any particular book or said in a podcast is just, it's part of what led me to that position. Yeah. So there's a lot more 
behind the position than merely what I've stated. Right. And so ideally it will encourage a sort of conversation to try and elicit some of the reasons why I hold the position that I hold. Mm. Um, and occasionally I change my mind. Someone presents mm. a better reading. Mm-hmm. A really good reading has an almost self-authenticating character. Hmm, it's like yes. a riddle. Yeah. When you hear the solution to a riddle, there's an elegance to it. Yes. Think, oh, it couldn't mean anything else. This just yeah. solves all the questions. So you're looking for, when you're reading the text, you are playing devil's advocate in your mind. So mm. you're presenting your own reading of the text. And this is the possibility. But then you're thinking, how would I argue against this? So I'm constantly arguing with myself in my mm. mind. So I'm thinking mm. about, okay, let's imagine those numbers are significant. What are the odds that that's what they're significant about? Mm. Well, there are some arguments in favour. You don't see those numbers anywhere else in Scripture, mm-hmm. apart from in reference to Sarah and Isaac and their age. And then you think, well, there's a connection between those numbers first, one of the mother and one of the child. So there's a very natural connection there. There's a theological connection with the book. Um, if you read the book of of Esther and you think about the connections between the story of Sarah and the house of Pharaoh and Abimelech, you think about the threats to Isaac's life, there are some theological connections there. I would not be the first person to make those connections. Jewish commentators and others have made those connections long before. So there are some arguments in favour. Then you think, okay, 180, could that just be half a year? Um, Is it about six months? And is there any deeper connection between those numbers in the passage itself, or are they just randomly there? And so I'm constantly asking myself those questions, and how many parameters of freedom am I giving myself here? Why isn't it 175, as in the age of Abraham? Um, Would we expect those numbers to have significance? Does Esther do things with numbers elsewhere in the book? Does it develop theological connections between these characters that would fill out that initial clue? And so it's a conversation that Mm. you're trying to internalise in your own head, but you're also needing lots of people alongside you to push you in. Right. And so so I always welcome when someone says, I don't quite agree with you on that. So the hope is let's start a conversation and see if we can arrive at insight. So it's a kind of, it's like a a, a communal thing. So so yes, in that sense, when you put your name to something, yeah, it's in, you put it in time, not necessarily uh, in, uh, in eternity. (laughs) And I think it's one of the benefits of the sort of media that I've generally used podcasts and blogs that there's a, a sort of provisionality to those media. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. When you're having a conversation, there's not you're not publishing something mm-hmm. with the same degree of firmness. If you're okay. a blog post as well, it's a dated thing. Okay. And so it will soon get lost in the archives and you'll move on and there's a sense, okay, that was written 10 years ago. He's probably changed his mind a little on that. Developed it. There's a sense, this is to a degree, a sandpit of thought. You're exploring these ideas. Mm. And they're not necessarily set in stone in the way that something published in a book might yeah, be. Interesting, yes. And, but in the meantime, hopefully it will encourage and stimulate someone. Yes. Yeah, which is the the, the, the ambition. And uh, now, oh, sorry, for, what was your first degree in? Uh, I started studying um, 
maths and philosophy and then uh -huh. switched. So I didn't complete that. I went in the direction of theology after that. Okay. And you, and you went on to do uh, master's at St. Andrews? Yes, and a doctorate in um, Durham. Right. And uh, with whom did you study in, uh, in Durham? Who was teaching or who, who were you exposed to? So I, I was, um, my supervisor was Canon David Kennedy. He was the um, Canon presenter of the cathedral. Mm -hmm. But yeah, there was fantastic New Testament department there. Extraordinary. So, so you had, did you have access to Dunn or Wright or anyone? Um, they gone? Wright at the very beginning of my time. Um, Dunn as well. Um, Francis Watson, uh, yeah, Barclay and others. Good gracious. And how we? Sorry, sorry, you're around those guys. Uh, you've done a great breadth of reading. Your priorities are the service of the church. You enjoy and are fascinated by the, the Christ of the scripture. What's What would be some advice you would give to people who are listening to this? On which fronts? Well, I'm going to leave that as open as you'd like it. I'd like to hear <laughs> your impulsive answer. <laughs> on the subject of reading scripture, one of the things that I constantly encourage people to do is to put their questions to one side when reading the text. Mm. Learn to listen. Maybe read a text seven times, something like that, and just listen, pay attention. What questions emerge at the end of that time? Asking a good question is not something that comes naturally. We tend to think that our questions are always the right questions. There's no wrong question. And to some extent, that's true. We all have to start somewhere. But by paying attention to the scripture, I think we'll find that we end up with better questions than we do if we just take the questions that come most naturally to us in our modern context. And so for me, the challenge of learning to be attentive to the text has been one that has constantly driven me. And mm. it's always, a, you never get beyond the challenge of doing that well. Mm. Um, but I'm trying to teach people who listen to my work and who uh, I engage with in various ways to do the same thing, to learn the art of attentiveness. Mm. Because when we're reading scripture, it's not just about learning the interpretation of a given passage. It's developing those skills of attentiveness that we bring to every passage. So what sort of things when you're reading a text are you looking out for? One of the best questions to ask is, where have I heard this before? What is familiar about this text? Mm. Or what is strange about this text? If I were writing this story, what detail that has been given to me would I not have thought to have included? Um, why is that in there? Mm. Other questions like, think about the pacing of the story, the way that the story is framed by other things. So you're reading the story, let's say, of chapter 18 and 19 of Genesis, and you start to notice there's parallels between these stories. There's angelic visitors to Abraham in chapter 18, and then there's angelic visitors to Lot and Sodom in chapter 19. And then there's two acts of hospitality. In both cases, the angels are invited in for a meal. And then in one case, there's fruitfulness because of a, an aged father and there's fruitfulness and a wife being made fertile. So she has, her womb is opened and she was going to give birth to Isaac. And then the other, the wife is made barren as a pillar of salt. You think those are two passages that probably need to be read alongside each other. And the more that you notice those patterns, begin to see the content of the text in the, the pattern itself sheds light upon the content. Mm. And so a lot of these 
practices of attentiveness are things that you will hone over time. Mm. When you're reading a text, you're not necessarily thinking about what we call chiasms when you first get into it. But when you start to see the way the structures are there and back again structure, or um, what we might think of a bookended structure where you're going A, B, C, um, C, B, A, that sort of pattern. It happens a lot in scripture. Mm-hmm. And when you start to see those patterns and follow them through, often they'll help you to see some of the, the big themes of the passage or mm-hmm. think about the word plays mm. or the similarities between events. Let's say the story of Noah. After the flood, he plants a vineyard and then he takes of the fruit and he's naked and he's uncovered in his tent. And then you have judgment upon three people, blessing upon two in this case, and then the, the curse upon Ham and Canaan. And it's a new full story. It's recognizing those sorts of patterns. Once you've been used to it for a while, you're seeing them everywhere. You're testing them and thinking, okay, how strong is this? But for me, it's developing attentiveness before we ever think to interrogate the text. Because when we interrogate the text, we think that we know the things that are important and we're just wanting to elicit from the text the answers to those things that we think are important. But we don't know the things that are important. <laughs> the text has to teach us that. Yeah. And so attentiveness is where we start. Oh, that's superb, yes. And the categories of our moment are so ephemeral. It reminds me of that thing Chesterton said, just because something is fashionable doesn't make yep. it right. And we're, we're surrounded by it. And it's horrifying when you see things which people are utterly committed in their bones unto, under the heading of fashion. And uh, But there's something, uh, I think he's got something right there. But yes, the categories which the text brings us to are God's categories, and they will set you free. Well, this has been outstanding. Thank you so much for your time, Alice. It's wonderful to talk with you, to hear your perspective on things, get to know you a bit better. So thank you for coming. Thank you very much for the invitation. For more episodes of the Christian Heritage London podcast, And for information on Christian Heritage London events, tours and walks, please go to christianheritagelondon.org.